Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel's expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program Update on Glioblastoma in Adults. And today's program is a program that I know many of you have been waiting for us to offer. It's an important program that I know you wait for us to offer this program. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and we really want to thank them for their support. Um, and actually, we have just wonderful speakers on our program today. And I also want to say that we have quite a few of you on the call today. We have over 263 participants on the call. You come from mostly the United States, from urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, so different parts of the United States, different regions. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Norway, Sweden, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. So clearly there's a lot of interest in this topic, and we are very delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now we have wonderful faculty and speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Dr. Bruce is the Edgar M. Hauspian Professor of Neuro Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. He's also Director, Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, and Co-Director, Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce will be addressing, um, discussing an overview of glioblastoma in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care, novel treatment approaches, the role of immunotherapy, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, I'm delighted to be here today on behalf of Cancer Care. Uh, this is certainly an unusual time for everyone. Uh, the COVID pandemic has created new challenges to patients coping with brain tumors, which we will discuss. And hopefully you will find this Cancer Care teleconference useful. I've been associated with this terrific organization for many years and have been able to see firsthand how they provide such wonderful service for many patients and their families. For those of you who are suffering from brain tumors, they're a great source of education and support. Now, this is an exciting time to be in the brain tumor field as there are many new advances in the treatment and diagnosis of glioblastoma. In fact, there are more scientists working on brain tumors than any other time in our history. Glioblastomas are what is known as primary brain tumors. That is, they begin in the brain and grow from within. This is distinct from metastatic brain tumors, which are tumors that have spread from elsewhere into the body and into the brain. Glioblastomas are malignant brain tumors and are the most common type of brain tumor. They can spread to other parts of the brain or spinal cord, but rarely spread to other parts of the body. They are invasive tumors, so most, most of the treatment is designed to control the tumor at the location in the brain where it begins. 
Although there are researchers who are trying to determine what causes brain tumors, at this point, no one knows. It is clear that nothing you did caused your brain tumor, and there was nothing you could have done to prevent it. Glioblastomas are diagnosed when patients develop any of a number of symptoms. Some general signs of brain tumors are headaches, seizures, weakness, balance problems, personality changes, or nausea. Depending on where the tumor is located in the brain, you can have specific symptoms such as speech difficulties, confusion about the right or left side of the body, problems with fine motor functions such as writing or buttoning a shirt, problems understanding words, or difficulty walking. Any of these symptoms can lead your doctor to suspect a brain tumor, and the diagnosis is usually made with an MRI scan. Of course, the biggest thing on everybody's mind is how the COVID-19 is going to affect uh, you and your brain tumor. You've all heard the warnings about avoiding contact by staying home and practicing self-isolation. You probably also know that patients who are older or who have chronic diseases are at higher risk for getting COVID and have a more severe illness. Therefore, anyone with a brain tumor, especially those who are on steroids or chemotherapy, should consider some, themselves at high risk. There's no reason to think that the virus itself will affect your tumor growth or how you respond to treatment. Really, the focus is on avoiding exposure to the virus so that you don't get the uh, illness. In addition to being careful to wear masks, practicing good hygiene, and minimizing your exposure in the public, you can see about having doctor consultations and office visits by phone or teleconference. This is now easy to do and avoids being in public, having to physically go to the doctor's office. Much of the technology has advanced very quickly for teleconferencing, and in the conferences we've done so far with patients in the last month, most of them have felt it very satisfying in being able to uh, communicate with their doctor, and um, many are grateful that they don't have to physically come into the, into the hospital or to the doctor's office. If you feel you are getting symptoms of the virus, such as fever, loss of smell, headache, diarrhea, then contact your, your doctor right away for guidance. If you're undergoing radiation, chemotherapy, or if you're in a clinical trial, you should contact your medical team to coordinate the care in a way that minimizes your exposure. And everybody is set up to do this now. Everyone is aware of this problem, and there are, there are procedures that everyone is forming. Now, more than ever, it is important to stay as healthy as possible with good diet, exercise, and activity as well as possible while addressing issues of, of stress related to your tumor. Okay, let me switch gears a little bit here and talk a little bit about the current standard of care. Current standard of care relies on surgery followed by six weeks of radiation and then chemotherapy with Temidar. In the treatment of glioblastoma, the goal of surgery is to try and remove as much tumor as possible. Depending on where the tumor is located, a surgeon may be able to move most of it or only a small portion of it. In some cases, only a biopsy may be reasonable. 
The problem with these tumors is that they invade into the normal brain, so it's not possible to completely remove them. There are a variety of techniques and tools that make surgery safer than ever. Surgery accomplishes two goals. One is to remove some of the mass effect on the brain that is causing problems, and the other is to provide tissue to give to the neuropathologist so that he or she can make the diagnosis. Pathologists now have very sophisticated methods of analyzing specialized, uh, specialized molecular characteristics of the tumor, which can give an idea about prognosis. You may be familiar with some of these terms, such as methylation status or IDH mutation. Once the surgery is complete and the patient has recovered, he or she will undergo 30 treatments of radiation therapy. This is generally given Monday through Friday for six weeks, generally painless, but some of the side effects can include hair loss, tiredness, and skin irritation. Radiation damages the DNA in tumor cells that cause tumor cells to grow. The amount of radiation given is designed to give the maximal effect on killing tumor cells while avoiding damage to normal brain tissue. After, the, after or during the radiation, chemotherapy is given as well. The standard chemotherapy is a drug called temozolomide, otherwise known as temidar. This drug has shown to be effective at slowing down tumor growth. It is sometimes given during the radiation, sometimes given after. In any event, it is effective in any manner that it is given. As I mentioned earlier, the, this has never been a better time for brain tumor research. A variety of new treatments are being developed. The ones that people are most familiar with are different kinds of chemotherapy and the very promising area of immunotherapy. There are many new drugs being developed all the time that are designed to target the growth of brain tumors. Some of the novel treatment approaches include ways to alter the chemotherapy so it gets into the brain at better penetration. Also, many of these drugs are designed to have less side effects and to be more effective at killing the tumor cells. With the advances in molecular biology techniques, scientists have been able to detail very much molecular and genetic analyses of individual tumors. This has led to a lot of excitement into the area so-called personalized therapy. What this means is that scientists can analyze a given tumor and determine what parts of the tumor are causing the growth that are different from other people's tumors. With that in mind, it may be possible to develop special drugs that target these individual problems and a person's given tumor. This work is very preliminary, and it's not been to develop to the point that it can be mass-produced for every individual but that is hopefully something on the horizon, the ability to give a treatment that is personalized for each individual. There are a variety of other drugs out there that are designed to attack tumors in other ways, such as affecting the blood vessels in the brain or blocking the invasion of the tumor into the brain. Also, there are some new kinds of drug delivery methods that are being tested including a strategy known as convection-enhanced delivery, where high doses of drugs are pumped directly into the tumor and surrounding brain tissue. Finally, 
there are some new develops in everything from gene therapy and the use of viruses to attack certain parts of the tumor. These treatments are part of a trend known as biological therapies, where specialized viruses or bacterias and products from them can be used to kill cancer cells. These sophisticated treatments have been worked out in research laboratories for many years and are just getting into the clinic for patient care now. They are holding out a lot of hope because they represent entirely new approaches to the treatment. Along those lines, one of the very promising areas for brain tumors is the field of immunotherapy. These are treatments that use vaccines and similar strategies to help the body's own immune system to eliminate the tumor. The immune system in human beings is remarkable. It's what allows you to get rid of viruses and bacteria that cause the flu or even coronavirus and other types of infections. Basically, the immune system recognizes viruses and bacteria as foreign invaders, which are then destroyed by the immune cells in the body, just like in the old Pac-Man video games. Interestingly, the immune system recognizes tumor cells like glioblastoma as a foreign invader and responds by stimulating an immune response. Unfortunately, the tumors grow faster than the immune system can destroy them, so much of the research now is designing new vaccines or drugs that can boost the immune system response. Much of the immunotherapy work is still at a very early stage, but these results are very provocative and very promising. The most promising areas include the use of vaccines from parts of the individual tumors themselves or from the harvesting or expanding of powerful immune cells such as T cells or dendritic cells that attack the tumor. One of the newest and highly personalized immunotherapies is called CAR T cell therapy, where CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. This treatment takes T cells, which are type of a immune cell from the patient's blood, and alters them so that they can bind to a certain protein, also known as an antigen, on the patient's cancer cell. These CAR T cells are then grown in large numbers in the laboratory and then infused back into the patient. The goal is to make these T cells better at recognizing brain cancer cells and to also make them more powerful in killing the tumor cells. There are also a number of uh, very promising drugs involving immunotherapy and, and drugs that boost the immune system. You may have heard of something called checkpoint inhibitors, which are among the most promising of, the, of these types of immune drugs that are being tested. Immune modifiers are often given in combination with other immunotherapies such as vaccines. So the idea is to boost the immune system in as many different ways as possible. Finally, I, I want to take the remaining time to talk about communicating with your healthcare team. First of all, it's important to seek reputable specialists it's helpful to find people who are specialists specifically in brain tumors, and it's easier than ever to find these people with the use of the internet and also by working with support groups and groups like cancer care, so this can be easily accomplished. Some questions to ask, what options do I have for treatment? What are the risks and most common side effects? Should I have a second opinion? Do I need to start treatment right away? 
what is the most effective way to communicate with the doctor and the medical team? It's important to have some control over your lifestyle, given the inconveniences of seeing doctors and getting tests and treatments. And this is compounded more in, in the setting of the COVID-19 virus. Keeping a notebook or using your smartphone to jot down notes and reminders will help to make sure that you're not overwhelmed by dealing with your condition. This way, when you see your doctor or visit with him, you can make sure that your questions are answered and you can make sure that your instructions are understood. You also wanna make sure that your other health professionals, such as your primary care doctor, are kept informed so they can coordinate your overall care. It's also important to keep an honest dialogue with your family so they understand what you're going through and can help you make decisions. Also, I would be skeptical of anecdotes, no matter how well-meaning. There are no two patients who are exactly alike, and I would be careful about trying to apply something you've heard about in another patient to your specific case. It may also be helpful to have second opinions if time is available. Having other opinions can help refine and formulate your questions. It's important to work with your healthcare team, friends, and family so that you can maintain the highest quality of life possible. This is very doable. Just because you have a brain tumor, no one is saying you can't visit, visit with a friend once the coronavirus is away or enjoy your birthday party have a nice meal or see a good movie. It's important to continue to live your life to the highest degree possible, despite any diagnosis or side effects that you may be suffering. This is by far the best way to cope with your tumor. I'm going to stop here now and turn the program over to Dr. Eric Wong. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really outstanding and just a, a wonderful overview of glioblastoma and just really all the details of the treatment. So thank you so much, and I really appreciate that. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eric Wong. Dr. Wong is Associate Professor of Neurology, Harvard Medical School, Director of the Neuro-Oncology Unit, Co-Director Brain Tumor Center, Department of Neurology, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing electric field treatments, Updates on clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options in the context of COVID-19, managing symptoms and treatment side effects, the role of rehabilitation medicine, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Messner and Dr. Bruce, for inviting me here to give my perspective on patient management as a medical neuro-oncologist. I'm sure that everyone is very anxious about the COVID-19 crisis that is going on right now. But hopefully, I can give you some sound information so that you can continue with your treatment and, um, and make yourself well. Now, uh, what I would like to do in the next uh, 10, 15 minutes is to talk about how uh, patients can participate in clinical trials during this COVID-19 crisis. And yes, patients can still participate in, in clinical trial, 
this is very, very important to the neuro-oncology community because clinical trials um, is where patients can get the most advanced treatments. And as you probably heard Dr. Bruce talk, uh, he talked about immunotherapy, and there are a variety of immunotherapies such as checkpoint inhibitors, CAR-T therapies, vaccines, gene therapy, or targeted therapy, and any combinations of the above. Now, patients um, uh, who are already in a clinical trials, um, we have to make some modifications in order to accommodate them during this COVID-19 crisis. And at most hospitals, we have set up remote monitoring, meaning that patients can log in on their computer, do video clinic visits, people can use their cell phones, uh, people can use their iPads uh, in order to talk to their doctors and the clinical trial nurses. Depending on the clinical trial, uh, if the patient is on an oral study medication, uh, there are sponsors who can uh, ship the oral medications directly to the patient's home. And in terms of um, making notations on the patient's uh, study diary, uh, patients can upload it online or take a picture, send it to their uh, neuro-oncologist uh, uh, to document that they have actually taken the drug. And this is the same for devices. The only issue has to do with the infusional chemotherapy. This is the only kind of medication that cannot be given at home. And therefore, patients have to make a trip to the hospital. And I'm sure that at the hospital, uh, patients will be seen, will be placed at places within the, the infusion center where they will be separated from uh, patients who are sicker. And if patients need to go to an MRI facility, um, depending on the sponsor and depending on the protocol, nowadays patients can go to a local facility, not that far from their home. Um, and the purpose of that is to prevent um, faraway travel. And then the MRI scan will be uploaded to the to their doctor's uh, computer system. The goal of this is to prevent uh, patients' uh, exposure to, to the COVID-19 virus uh, as much as possible. Now, there's also another category of patients in which these patients can potentially participate in a uh, experimental treatment or in a clinical trial, however, um, uh, because of the COVID-19 crisis, there are various institutions that have uh, put a hold on enrolling new patients. And depending on the protocol, um, uh, sometimes patients may need to take either conventional treatments because uh, of time constraints, because their tumor has to be treated, or they can take uh, treatments that does not interfere with their eligibility criteria. So talk to your doctors, talk to what your options are, 
and determine whether or not conventional treatment is the option for you or um, wait a little bit for your clinical trials if your tumor remains stable. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about the some of the conventional treatments um, because uh, the conventional treatments are uh, during this crisis, uh, we have to uh, modify some of our management of patients. So, you, pr I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of you are familiar with uh, temozolomide, which is the main drugs that patients get at the time of diagnosis. And uh, temozolomide is taken every day during radiation, and uh, temozolomide can potentially cause a drop in blood count. And therefore, patients will need to have their complete blood count, blood tests monitored on a weekly basis. And the goal of that is to determine and catch a drop in blood counts quickly so that the patients won't be susceptible to infections. I'm talking about infections from bacteria and uh, certainly from viruses. There's also other chemotherapy drugs that can potentially lower the patient's white blood cell counts. But uh, as long as uh, we kept a close eye on them uh, and get weekly blood counts um, and they be monitored, and um, if the blood count falls within a certain range, uh, we can certainly stop the chemotherapy to prevent it from dropping further. There's another medication that can potentially um, uh, lower the patient's immunity, and that is desimethasone. And uh, we typically, and I'm sure that uh, most neuro-oncologists would do this, is to minimize the amount of exposure to desimethasone. Only if patients need the desimethasone, they only take the minimum dose necessary. Now, there are a number of treatments conventional treatments that does not drop the patient's white blood cell counts or the patient's immunity. One of them is bevacizumab or Avastin. And this is a type of therapy called anti-angiogenesis therapy. And what it does is that it blocks blood vessels that are feeding the tumor. Um, the dosing is unclear, but, um, but the dose but a lower dose appears to be working just as well or maybe better than the standard dose. So, um, so um, at the time of recurrence, or patients develop um, uh, swelling in the brain, bevacizumib is an option or avastin is an option. The next type of treatment that I would like to talk about is tumor-treating field. Now, tumor-treating fields has been approved since 2011, and it was approved for patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma in 2015. And it is listed in the NCCN guideline, and what this, this is actually not a drug, but a device that emits uh, alternating electric fields. And it works by interfering with tumor cells as they undergo mitosis. Therefore, it can actually, Active, actively destroy tumor cells. 
The maximum effect is when patients utilize this device for 75% of the time or at least 18 hours in a day uh, or more. Higher usage appears to be better, um, and uh, it increases the patient's survival. The toxicity is primarily limited to the scalp in which uh, some redness or irritation can occur. And this can be easily treated with topical corticosteroids um, that can be applied to the scalp. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about side effects when they appear in patients. And these side effects are from chemotherapy drugs. So, for example, um, patients can have low white blood cell counts. And, and the treatment of that, uh, if it gets too low, um, we use hormones that act on the bone marrow to boost the white blood cell counts quickly. So uh, they have, uh, and these hormones have names like Neupogen. Um, uh, I think your doctors are well, are very familiar with them or a long-acting version called Neulasta. Um, uh, the chemical name is called granulocyte um, colony stimulating factor. Now, last year, there was a very important publication that came out in one of the neurology journals about um, the treatment for low platelets. There's a new drug called Romiplustin, or N-plate which is the commercial name. Previously, when patients have low platelets, there's no hormone for the bone marrow to boost their count. The only way of preventing uh, or treating the low platelets is by a platelet infusion. And these platelets can be taken up by the spleen, and then um, patients may need weekly platelet transfusion or every other day or sometimes even daily platelet transfusion. So it has become a very, very uh, cumbersome uh, treatment. However, this hormone called rambiplastin or N-plate can be given to patients, and if this is given in a timely fa fashion, it can boost the platelet count and uh, prevent platelets from getting too low and patients suffers from spontaneous bleeding. Um, patients who are on desimethasone can develop a cushionoid uh, physical appearance, meaning that uh, they can develop uh, weight gains, um, puffy phase, uh, they can develop a voracious appetite, and the medications can interfere with their sleep. There's really no antidote to desimethasone, however, um, by limiting the amount of medication to 4 milligrams or less, or by discontinuing med the medication or by switching it to Avastin that I spoke about previously. It can, uh, patients can, um, uh, those symptoms can be reversed with time. And it usually takes about a month or two for the patient's uh, uh, for the desimethasone side effects to resolve. So another thing that I would like to touch on is rehabilitation. And I'm sure that a lot of patients will need rehabilitation, primarily because um, uh, they may suffer 
from neurological deficits from the tumor or from swelling in the brain or from seizure or from a variety of com potential complications of their disease. So once we stabilize the patient, we need to get them back to their baseline health. And by doing so, we have to enlist the help of physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists, as well as cognitive therapists, in order to uh, get them um, into their as best of a state as possible. Now, there's a medication that we use quite often in the glioblastoma population, and that is methylphenidate or Ritalin. And uh, uh, the reason we use them is because um, when patients with the tumor or from um, prior radiation or from brain swelling, patients may develop uh, cognitive problems or slowing in responding to questioning or talking or doing things on a daily basis. Methylphenidate or Ritalin will speed up that process. So, so there are medications and there are physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapies to help these patients. Our goal is to keep patients healthy and well while treating their tumors and minimizing the side effects. Now, um, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, I'm sure that uh, patients uh, would want to talk to family members, friends from another city, um, uh, before the crisis, I would all I I would encourage patients to travel to visit them. However, during this crisis, um, traveling may not be ideal. But on the other hand, we have Zoom, we have FaceTime, we have various types of video softwares that enable the patients to be in touch with their family, as well as the doctors and their healthcare team. So. Um, so um, uh, please be aware that, um, uh, that there are various ways to help you well physically and also emotionally and, and mentally as well. Please speak to your treatment team, and they will help you. So I will send the post podium back to Dr. Messner, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really excellent, very comprehensive, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And before we take questions, I um, would like to say some words about Cancer Care Services for all of you to know so that you're actually aware of the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So, um, and I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm an oncology social worker. I am Director of Education at, and Training at Cancer Care. And the services we offer are really quite varied, and really many of them I think will be incredibly useful to all of you to be aware of. Um, first of all, um, Cancer Care has a, a HOPE line, and we have a special line also for people who have brain tumors, and so that you can contact us, and we, our staff will be helping, we can help you with some of your uh, questions and concerns that you may have. Um, in addition to that, and we also do offer financial assistance and help with transportation and practical assistance. And those services also are available from just calling our 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, 
or going to our website, www.cancercare.org. And all of these resources will be sent to you. You'll be getting an evaluation after the program today, and all of that information will be um, available to all of you as well. Um, and um, in addition to that, um, I just want to go over what these services are. So when you contact us, either uh, either by phone or online, um, our staff will then uh, begin to um, let you know all the services we have to offer you and also see what your needs are. Um, and we, we have um, the, our staff are oncology social workers, and they're um, quite experienced in helping all of you with some of your questions and concerns, um, the psychosocial questions and concerns you may have. And so we are available to then assist you with a variety of your concerns and questions that you may have and, 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 and questions. And so we, we do also, um, we actually can assist you in, in your, in just some practical matters. And of course, financial and transportation matters. And we also do have special funds that, um, for people who are dealing with both glioblastoma and COVID as well. So we actually, um, we are really having a lot of different services for many of you on this program today. Um, our staff also um, are able to help you with some of your emotional and social and practical concerns. And that means that they can talk to you about, oh, your concerns about perhaps um, how to, what questions you might want to ask your doctor or, um, or questions that you may have about about just how you're functioning, how you feel, um, how do you talk to your children about or grandchildren about about your uh, glioblastoma, or how do you how do you do that? Um, so that we have a lot of different services that you can access. They're all free, and they're all simply a telephone call or a mouse click away in terms of getting our services. Um, and uh, we also do have, in addition to these education programs, we also do have a number of publications and fact sheets that you can also access that have, that be very relevant to your concerns and questions. So the bottom line is that you actually, um, it is a nice resource for you to have, um, and it's also, um, they, it is available to you um, Monday through Friday um, during normal business hours, uh, East Coast time, and you actually can access our staff. And our website, of course, is accessible all the time. You can post, you can post a question or you can actually um, join. Uh, you also can join one of our either online or telephone support groups as well. And um, we have specific online groups for people with glioblastoma. We have specific online support groups for people who are caregivers of people with glioblastoma. So all those services are available and um, so that they're, you know, they're available to you. So um, I, with that being said, I now would like to um, um, ask Sonia to go ahead and explain to our participants how to queue up and ask questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, um, Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this one is um, is a question actually for um, for Dr. Wong. I have a rash resulting from Dilantin. Are there any topical creams that you would recommend to treat this? Okay. Um, yes, I can answer that question. 
Uh, I think the most important thing uh, with any drug rash, including Dilantin, is to stop the offending medication. And there are plenty of other anti-seizure medications available. Uh, please check with your doctor because uh, your doctor has to review your uh, medical profile as well as your blood test to see what um, what other seizure medications is best fit for you. Um, now, a dilantin rash is uh, primarily is a rash on the chest or the back, and it can be quite itchy. Um, uh, and um, as soon as we see the rash, we have to stop it because if um, if your body is constantly being stimulated by the offending agent, it will become worse and worse. The worst um, uh, condition is something that we call um, uh, epidermal nec uh, necrolysis, uh, and we absolutely want to prevent that from happening. But if the itching is preventing you from sleeping or from uh, doing activities during the day, yes, you can apply some topical steroid uh, that your doctor can prescribe, um, a hydrocortisone cream you can buy over the counter and you can apply it there as well. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Bruce. Under what conditions do you recommend using gamma knife therapy? surgery, and actually if you could explain that a bit to the audience. So gamma knife is a special type of radiation known as uh, focused or localized radiation. And what this means is that the radiation is give to a, given to a very well-defined area in the tumor or surrounding brain. It's not designed to treat uh, a large part of the brain. And this type of radiation is given at very high doses. So it's usually given uh, just one time or, or maybe up to three or four, uh, even five times, um, but because it's, it's at, a, at a very high dose. Now, standard radiation, the kind that we get at the beginning after your, after your first diagnose and begin your treatment, you get 30 treatments of radiation. And it's a different type of radiation, and it's given that way to help protect the brain. Radiosurgery, because it's such a high dose, because it's very focused, it has to be limited to just areas of the tumor and not the surrounding brain. And so gamma knife is rarely used for glioblastoma. And the reason for that is the, these tumors, because they invade the brain, if you looked at this under a microscope, you would see that the margins of the tumor uh, and into the surrounding brain, that there are tumor cells mixed in with normal brain cells. And so if you give a high dose of radiation to those parts of the tumor, you're going to also kill important brain cells. And because these tumor cells invade into the brain at a distance, anything that's that's sort of localized, any kind of radiation that's localized, like gamma knife, is only going to treat a very small part of the tumor, and it's going to leave the invasive parts of the tumor uh, in, invading the brain. It's going to leave those un, untreated. So uh, it's rare that gamma knife is used for glioblastoma. It occasionally can be used if there's a very specific area of the tumor that has, can be, has to be treated. But because these are invasive tumors, we normally re rely on treatment.
treatment strategies that are going to address all of those invasive parts of the tumor. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bruce. And um, a question for Dr. Wong. Um, uh, this is from our online participants. Are there um, any magnetic hyperthermia therapy trials, studies being conducted in the United States? Um, I am not aware of it at this time. Um, uh, uh, I know that there was a trial a while back. I would suggest that um, uh, uh, the caller to look up clinicaltrials.gov. This is a website that uh, patients or family or their physicians can go in to look up various types of clinical trials available. Um, and in that website, uh, you can type in magnetic field therapy, um, and uh, it, if there is one, you can click on it, and it shows the eligibility criteria and the various institutions uh, in the United States or in other countries that are participating in that trial. So although I'm not aware of it, um, uh, I I would encourage uh, patients and their family to look to look it up in clinicaltrial.gov. Excellent. That's, and that's an excellent resource for everybody as well. And um, for clinical trials, thank you so much. Um, and a question um, for uh, Dr. Bruce. Um, online. My mom recently finished her radiation therapy. Her latest MRI indicates either swelling or growth in the tumor. Her doctor says that he is unsure and it could be pseudo-progression. We noticed some changes in her cognition a few days ago. When we informed him, um, he prescribed X8 um, milligram in the morning and 4 milligrams in the evening. Would it have been a best to prescribe Ritalin um, or should we ask him to lower her dex dosage because given what I've heard in the workshop, that might be too high dosage for her. Now, this is, of course, a very personal question. So if you could address this, Dr. Bruce, in a, in a general way that might allow um, this, the person asking the question to then go back to their healthcare team in a little bit more informed way about, about, how, um, about this issue. Right. Yes, it's it's hard for me to comment on a specific patient without seeing the scans and knowing all of the uh, the background. So I'll just address that generally. Pseudo progression is something that happens after treatment. So normally, when a person is first treated with radiation and chemotherapy, the that treatment is designed to kill the tumor cells, and when it, caught, when it treats the tumor cells, it also causes an inflammatory response in the brain. So it's actually not unusual to have some increased swelling in the brain for a while after the treatment has finished. And that's not, that, that can actually be a good thing. It means that the tumor is responding to the treatment. The problem is it's not always easy to tell when you look at an MRI scan or when the patient's having more swelling or having more symptoms, after the treatment has started or after the treatment has finished, it's not always possible to tell whether what you're seeing on an MRI scan is the swelling and inflammation from a good 
response to the treatment or if the tumor is not responding and is continuing to grow. There are some special types of MRI scans that can distinguish that, such as a PET scan or a magnetic resonance spectroscopy. But even those scans are not foolproof when trying to distinguish between the two. And of course, it's important to know whether you either have pseudoprogression or whether your tumor is growing because the treatment for it is different. If the tumor is still growing, meaning they haven't responded to those treatments, then you want to consider another type of, of brain tumor treatment. But if the patient actually has pseudoprogression, meaning that their tumor is responding to treatment and they are mounting an inflammatory response with some swelling, it's important to know that that generally will get better over time. And as long as the swelling is not out of control, many times you don't have to do anything to treat it. And so, uh, but if, if the swelling is, is uh, getting a little bit worse and there are um, symptoms related to that, then uh, it's not unusual for someone to be on dexamethasone and, and steroids, at least for a while until that inflammatory response goes away. As I said, it's difficult sometimes to distinguish whether you have pseudoprogression or whether you are having actual tumor progression. So it's not unusual for, uh, for the doctors to recommend just sitting tight and, and doing nothing, maybe taking some steroids to reduce the symptoms, but most of all, just waiting and seeing and repeating the MRI scan in a month or two, because usually it's possible to, if you wait over time and the look at the MRI scan, you can see if those changes that are occurring are really due to pseudoprogression or whether they're due to tumor progression. I know that's a very, this is a very complicated topic, um, but it's also something that we see commonly. And I think um, don't panic if, if someone is trying to say, we don't know what's going on. Usually it becomes more clear in a month uh, or, or so later once the, uh, once the uh, MRI scan changes. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and, um, and thank you for the questions. These are really these are really outstanding questions. I have to say, this is a rather informed audience, I must say. Um, and another question now for um, for Dr. Wong: um, Is there any research to show extending chemotherapy for more than six rounds post radiation is beneficial if the patient is tolerating it well and blood counts are high enough? And again, this is a, obviously a personal question. So if you could just address it in a general way, and so that. Our, our, the person asking the question can then go back to their healthcare team with perhaps some more informed um, questions to them. Sure, sure. I can uh, address this in a general way. Um, the clinical trial that um, that uh, study the addition of temozolomide to radiation. Um, uh, in that clinical trial, patient rece- patients received. Uh, daily temozolomide during the radiation, and after radiation is done, the patients receive um, six cycles of adjuvant temodoc, meaning that patients receive a higher dose, usually uh, doubling the dose that was taken uh, during the radiation, um, but only for five days, and repeated uh, on a monthly basis. 
So that is for six six uh, months. After that, uh, uh, patients did not receive any further uh, adjuvant temodar chemotherapy. Now, I understand that there are neuro-oncologists um, uh, who gave um, adjuvant temozolomide in various number of cycles, but most of them have given uh, six cycles or maybe more. Um, but I am not aware of any evidence to show that uh, giving more is better than six cycles by itself. But the data is really at six cycles. Excellent. Thank you. And, and another question for you, Dr. Wong. Um, so our radiation oncologist suggested Optune, a tumor-treating field device. However, um, her neuro-oncologist um, stated that he is unsure it would help because those treatments might not be effective for tumors that are lower, i.e., on the brain stem. Again, if you could address this in a general way. Okay. Um, yes, I'll be happy to address that. Um, uh, the clinical trial that led to the approval of Optune involves tumors in the part of the brain that are above the ears. Uh, it's called the supratentorial brain. So Optune is not um, approved for tumors that are below the ears or in the uh, cerebellum, in the um, in or in the brainstem. Um, now, uh, whether or not to use it, uh, uh, I think the patient have to uh, speak to their doc their physicians and caretakers, um, uh, their medical professionals, in on an individual basis, uh, because there could be um, some. Uh, 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 some circumstances that may still enable them to benefit from the treatment, but that has to be uh, determined on an individual basis. Um, if if there is a difference in opinion between the uh, medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist, maybe um, uh, if the patient can uh, travel to seek another opinion at another in at a reputable in institution, uh, or if the patient cannot travel um, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, um, I think a lot of the institutions have made video clinic visits available to patients uh, who, who uh, that can obviate uh, long-distance traveling. So maybe, um, maybe uh, the patient should seek another opinion and uh, and determine whether or not this is really beneficial for him or her. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Um, Bruce, um, are there any risk factors associated with developing glioblastoma? Yeah, you know, that's a question everybody always wonders about. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of studies trying to see if there is a link between brain tumors and things in the environment, one of the big concerns people have is is with cell phones and uh, and uh, radio waves, and uh, there the evidence mostly seems to point that there is no 
connection between things like cell phones. And uh, no one has really been able to find any kind of carcinogen or any kind of uh, a chemical that seems to cause uh, brain tumors. It's not like we know that smoking causes lung cancer and we know that there are risk factors for other types of cancers. But for the most part, brain cancer, we really haven't been able to find a link with uh, environmental causes. So I think, as I said earlier, there's there's nothing you did to cause your brain tumor and nothing you could have done to prevent it. And just to follow up on that, and this will probably be our last question, um, Dr. Roos, um, do all glioblastoma patients experience seizures? Uh, no. No, not all. Um, in fact, um, I would say, and Dr. Wong can correct me on this, I think most most do not have seizures. Dr. Wong? Uh, yes. Um, yes, uh, correct, uh, Dr. Bruce. Um, and actually, patients uh, present with a variety of symptoms depending on which part of the brain is uh, the tumor is situated at. Sometimes they uh, present with vision loss, sometimes they present with mental status change, um, sometimes they prevent it with a change in personality, not necessarily seizures. Um, so it's only in a smaller population of patients within the group of glioblastoma patients that presents with seizures. And interestingly, and, and this has been documented in the medical literature, uh, patients who have seizures, uh, their tumor seems to be smaller at the time of initial diagnosis, probably because uh, seizure is an unequivocal uh, indication for getting a brain scan. So, therefore, patients uh, with seizures, they they are usually di diagnosed earlier with, uh, with the tumor. So, so uh, to allow the medical professionals to intervene sooner. Oh, thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've been really phenomenal, uh, Dr. Bruce, Dr. Wong. You've and, and had a great team also in working together. So I want to thank you so much. And I also want to thank all of our participants who queued up and asked such great questions that really enhanced our call today. Now we recognize that there are many more questions in queue, so I do want to address that those issues first of all right away up front. Um, so. Um, for those of you who still have questions or even had, had an opportunity to ask a question, we ask you all to go back to your treating healthcare team. I think has been pointed out by our speakers. Of course, they know everything about you. And they have all the records and everything. So they're a very good resource for you to go to. However, we also recognize that you all um, like to do research on your own a little bit too. So you feel more perhaps confident or more informed when you ask questions. So a program like this or other organizations may be very helpful to you. So we, um, there are a number of uh, brain tumor organizations that we have partnered with on today's program, and they are a wonderful resource to go to in terms of information. They, they all have a lot of information about, about the treatment of brain tumors. And we also, in terms of clinical trial information, um, clinicaltrials.gov, and you'll be getting all of that information in your evaluation. So your evaluation isn't just an evaluation. We do like to hear your feedback, but we also want to provide you with some, any summary um, resources that you can have after today's program that you can all utilize. So that's really important that you all have that as well. Um, and for those of you who wish to pursue, uh, and we do recommend very much that you actually go to credible resources. It's really important that they be 
peer-reviewed, evidence-based information that you're going to, and that basically that it is contemporary to this year. That you know, it's always that someone usually on the web it'll tell you like when things were updated. So it's very important. And the National Cancer Institute is also a great resource as well. So you'll be getting all of that information um, about resources that you can actually depend upon um, to be accurate in terms of the information you get from them. Um, and also for those of you who wish to pursue any of the services from Cancer Care or contact Cancer Care, you know, please do so. Those services are free and actually, um, and they are, um, they also will help you in, in your daily coping in terms of either practical or financial assistance or um, actually having a chance to speak to one of our oncology social workers uh, to actually uh, discuss whether you wish to join, whether you want to have online or telephone um, counseling services or, or you wish to join a support group as well um, or any of the other services that we may have. So those people find them often very helpful in, in their coping. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you are alone in coping with the glioblastoma or any type of cancer. So it is normal to feel alone at times, and of course everyone feels alone sometimes. That's a normal feeling. But we do also want you to tuck away the thought that you are now connected to a lot of resources that are available to you. And do take advantage of them. It's okay to ask for help. Even if you're not sure you even need the help, call anyway. Because you know what? You may find something there that you hadn't thought could help you that could be an enormous resource to you. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you very much for participating in today's program. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. And you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.